You're listening to Feedback with Bill Saunders on News Talk 830 WEEU and 830WEEU.com. A new generation of talk. I want you to want me. bit of cheap trick to start off this Monday edition of Feedback. You're on air town square here on the voice of Berks and Beyond News Talk 830 WEEU. Good morning everyone. I'm Bill Saunders and I'm joined by my new producer today, Sean Tansky, who I can't see because of the screen in front of me here. (laughs) Sean, good morning. Welcome to the show, bud. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited for this opportunity. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on board and there, uh, well, we did a switcheroo here with producers because I understand that uh, there's a whole new uh, level of responsibility for the producer now. You're not just answering the phones. There's there's a lot that you're going to be doing to contribute to feedback and share with the audience, Sean, what you're going to be doing. Yeah, so I'm really excited uh, for what we have planned coming up. Uh, first big one is uh, feedback's going to be pretty active on our social media channels, not only on the uh, 8.30 uh, WEU accounts, but going to get our own account up and running. Cool. Just have all of this going uh, going for us. We're also going to uh, be making these shows into podcast format. So if you miss it, uh, when it originally airs, you could catch it anytime you want, uh, wherever you could get podcasts. Um, a lot of promotions we're going to be doing. You're going to hear modern uh, recycling promos for the show, so nothing gets too, too stale. Okay. Um, and the one you're really excited about that we talked about this morning is I'm going to try to get a weekly segment here about uh, issues that, you know, a younger demographic uh, has with today's, you know, political landscape. I'm 23 myself, so I think I have a pretty good idea of uh, similar aged people of what uh, they want to see in, uh, you know, today's uh, political uh, climate. So I'm really excited to be working with you. Same here, Sean. And that was one of the things that, uh, given given Sean's age, I said, hey, why don't we do a segment uh, where we look at the, the issues that are impacting young people today? And uh, this 68-year-old possibly just, just can't possibly do that. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to rely on Sean to do that. And somewhere down the road, he's being humble here, but somewhere down the road, Sean is going to become the fill-in host and possibly down the road, if if I'm not here, become the host of feedback. <laughs> yeah, I remember first time we met, you kept offering the job to me. <laughs> you want to do feedback? Yep. <laughs> so uh, so I'm looking forward to working with Sean, uh, and uh, and uh, already this morning we, we hit it off great, and uh, so it's, it's, it's going to be a great uh, thing for feedback. And also sound bites. You're going to be hearing a lot more sound bites on this show, uh, things that I couldn't do on my own. Yeah, I know. Every once in a while, I did include a soundbite here or there. But when you're putting together a show like this, uh, it's it's it really is a team effort. It requires a team. And uh, so Sean and I are going to be working together as a team 
where he will be putting together sound bites uh, for stories that we talk about here on the show. And he's also going to be working on getting uh, uh, guests as well. And I do want to mention my executive producer, uh, who is uh, Daryl Berger. Daryl Berger is also working on getting guests for us uh, on the show. So, uh, I, it, like I said, it's going to be a team effort going forward, and I look forward to working with Sean and Daryl going forward. Uh, let's take a look at today's top three topics before we go any farther. By the way, our, our phone number, I never did get to that, did I? I guess we started talking about uh, uh, Sean coming on board and his responsibilities that I totally overlook giving you our phone numbers today. 610-374-8800, toll-free, and our email address here remains the same, feedback at 830weeu.com. And if you'd like us to read your email on the air, I'm going to ask you to include your first name, the town you live in, and let us know whether or not we have your permission to read that email on the air. All right, with that said, let's take a look at today's top three topics. Governor Shapiro is eyeing legalized marijuana as a potential cash cow for the state's farmers. We'll get into that story. An Alabama Supreme Court ruling has Republicans in a quandary over in vitro fertilization. We'll discuss what that's all about if you're not familiar yet with the details. And a man suspected of killing a nursing student is an illegal immigrant from Venezuela. And coming up at 11 o'clock this morning, I'll be joined by some folks from the Karen Treatment Center and from the Council on Chemical Abuse to discuss supporting addiction recovery through culturally appropriate approaches. All right, with that said, let's get started. Uh, Were you impacted by the AT&T cell phone outage last week? If so, AT&T says they're going to do something for you. I got this from AP. They say they're going to give affected customers $5 each to compensate for last week's cell phone network outage that left many without service for hours. The Dallas-based company said on its website that customers will get the $5 credit on their account within two billing cycles. The credit does not apply to AT&T business, prepaid service, or Cricket, which is AT&T's low-cost wireless service. AT&T says prepaid customers will have options available to them if they were impacted, although it did not elaborate on what those options might be. The outage knocked out cell phone service for thousands of its users across the United States starting early Thursday before it was restored. AT&T blamed the incident on an error in coding without elaborating, and said it was not the result of a cyber attack, thank goodness. Is $5 enough when you're without phone service? And many people today don't have landlines. They don't have any other means of of making a phone call or getting a phone call when their cell phone goes out. So I've got to ask you, do you think that's fair? Do you think that's enough, getting a $5 credit for being without phone service for a good part of the day? And I think it was for a good part of the day, uh, to be honest with you. Then there's this. Oh, my goodness. When I saw this story, I said, tell me China's at it again. Did you hear about the high high altitude balloon that flew over parts of the United States over the weekend? (laughs) Well, this is from CBS. And of course, when I saw this uh, immediately, I, I thought of China because it was actually actually one year ago. Uh, believe it or not, that we had that Chinese weather balloon or what they said was a weather balloon that flew all over or all across the United States before it was finally shot down. So I got this from CBS. 
The small high-altitude balloon being tracked by the U.S. has left American Airspace, the North American Airspace or Aerospace Defense Command, told CBS News Saturday afternoon. CBS News first reported that the military was tracking the balloon as it traversed the western United States on Friday. NORAD, the military command responsible for air defense over the U.S. and Canada, later confirmed it had detected the object and said it was floating between 43,000 and 45,000 feet above the surface of the Earth. Its presence prompted enough concern that the command sent aircraft to investigate. One U.S. official told CBS News the balloon was expected to be over Georgia by Friday night. And the official said the balloon appeared to be made of mylar and had a small cube-shaped box about two feet long on each side hanging below it. The balloon was intercepted by NORAD fighters over Utah, who determined it was not maneuverable and did not present a threat to national security. NORAD will continue to track and monitor the balloon. This is a a statement that was issued by NORAD. That statement went on to say the FAA also determined the balloon posed no hazard to flight safety. Well, on Saturday, an official with the Department of Defense told CBS News that the object was actually a hobbyist balloon and not uh, associated at all with, uh, with China. But I got this from BBC. It was last February... Uh, that we had that balloon episode that sparked a diplomatic crisis between Washington and Beijing. Remember, Chinese authorities back then denied it was a spy aircraft, describing it as a weather ship blown astray. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken at the time canceled a trip to China, calling the airship's presence an irresponsible act. So it's it, it just is ironic that one year later we've got another uh, weather balloon uh traversing our airspace, and it just made you wonder what's going on here. All right, with that said, let's go to the phones this early in the show. It's Richard in Wyoming who wants to talk about the Alabama story. You're a little bit early on this, but go ahead, Richard. Good morning. Yes, I guess it's how the Alabama intravenous fertilization ties in with the election at large. Um, I want to congratulate again, Dr. Blessing. We talked about that great show, and I want to welcome Sean. I think it's a wonderful idea to let younger people, uh, you know, uh, put their uh, two cents in also. Um, What I wanted to say, I guess, about uh, intravenous uh, intervention, it it shows, again, uh, how important uh, to many voters uh, the uh, uh, Supreme Court decision to reverse Roe and then you know, uh, how Alabama and other states, they're, they're not going to be uh, even, you know, satisfied with uh, the abortion ban. They're going on to other things like saying that uh, embryos are people. Uh, and they, they not only do they want to ban abortion, they want to ban, uh, you know, intravenous uh, fertilization. And it's ironic, uh, many Republicans, uh, Trump in particular, were always saying how important families are and you need bigger families and uh, what could be better than a baby and a lot of couples who really want babies uh, and for whatever medical reason they can't have them uh, of course um, you know that would be an option and uh, you know I I won't go into skits on Saturday Night Live about uh, you know it just keeps going further and further but um, 
that brings up, uh, you know, I really do think it will affect the election. And um, now that Trump uh, won, he he only won in South Carolina the other day by what uh, um, Nikki Haley got 40 percent and he got 60. If uh, Dr. Blessing was there this morning, he'd say when Lyndon Johnson in 1968 um, got 80 percent to Gene McCarthy's 20 percent, he dropped out. I mean, uh, you know, I'm glad to see Nikki Haley saying she's, a, you know, she's going to stay in through uh, Super uh, Tuesday. But anyway, that leads me to the very last thing, which was in the um, New York Times today. And it's very short. It's just a little uh, short letter. It's not a big thing. It, it's called This Is in Jeopardy, uh, the TV show. And it said uh, uh, President Biden would be a terrible contestant on Jeopardy because like instant recall and exact phrasing aren't his strengths. But presidents don't play foreign policy for 200. They play it for real, uh, which requires uh, knowledge, deliberation, not flashcard memory. And a president takes advice from experts, cabinet level on down and so forth. Um, the, The last thing says President Biden has chosen advisors based on ability and experience, and Trump favors uh, just loyalty and transactional things and has no real uh, principles or agenda. We somehow survived Mr. Trump's chaotic first term. Did the American people really want to place the country in double jeopardy? And that's all I had today, but uh, some food for thought. Well, that was a lot that you packed in there in about uh, three and a half minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm I'm really glad. you know, I, I, I hope uh, indeed you continue to have Dr. Blessing on there. And I wonder, you know, remember Friday I couldn't get in because time was short because of the first section. But I wish I would have uh, had time to ask him about how, like, uh, not only dark money, but repeating of uh, lies and misinformation on, uh, you know, Fox News and Newsmax. It, it, they They keep saying, you know, that, oh... Uh, 98% of the people in South Carolina, you know, wanted Trump or, you know, that uh, everybody's in favor of his uh, tax policies or whatever, or the big lie about the election. And, you know, if people would really search facts like um, uh, fact-checking things that are impartial, they they really, you know, but they get bombarded. They hear it like so many times, the Biden crime family or uh, crooked Joe Biden, that after a while, if they're not news junkies like you and I, they they start to believe all those things. So anyway, uh, congratulations on Dr. Blessing. Congratulations on your show, new show with the producer. And I think it's great to have a 23-year-old uh, because uh, I listen to younger people all the time. So thank you. Thank you, Richard. Appreciated the call today. You have a good day, okay? Yeah, thank All right. you. All right, Bye. bye-bye now. 610-374-8800. Toll-free, 888-401-0459. We're going to take a break. I was going to talk about the Alabama story a little later on in the show, but since Richard brought it up, I'll give you the details if you're not familiar with what took place down there. And, yes, it only impacts Alabama. No other state in the country at this point. Uh, And we'll also talk about how the Republicans are reacting to that. All of that when feedback, your on-air town square, continues in just a bit. 
can use. I feel more informed when I listen. News Talk 830, WEEU. And now back to Feedback with Bill Saunders on 830 WEEU, the voice of Berks and Beyond. My, there's a song I haven't heard in a long time. Bachman Turner Overdrive bringing us out of that commercial break. Right here on The Voice of Burks and Beyond, News Talk 830 WEEU. As feedback, your on-air town square continues. Bill Saunders along with Sean Tansky. And Sean, uh, we were talking uh, at the beginning of the show that you're going to be doing a segment uh, focusing on issues of importance to young people. Uh, are, we're going to do that every Friday. Am I correct there? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay, very good. All right, I just wanted to clarify that so that everybody knows when to look forward to that segment that Sean will be doing here on a regular basis here on Feedback. All right, you, you heard uh, Richard from Wyoming uh, talk about this uh, decision that uh, the Alabama Supreme Court uh, ruled over the weekend. Uh, or going into the weekend, I should say. And let's talk a little bit further about what it means here. And again, this only impacts Alabama at this point, unless they make a change here. But this I got from Reuters. The Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos created and stored for in vitro fertilization, or IVF, are children under a state law allowing parents to sue for wrongful death of their minor children. The ruling revived three families' lawsuits accusing a Mobile, Alabama fertility clinic known as Center for Reproductive Medicine and the hospital where it's located, which is Mobile Infirmary, Infirmary rather, of failing to properly safeguard frozen embryos, resulting in their destruction. Well, the eight-to-one majority of the court found that it was a long-established precedent that unborn children are children for the purpose of the 1872 wrongful death law at issue in this case. It said that any doubt about that was removed by a 2018 amendment of the state's constitution, which declared that it was the public policy of this state to recognize and support the sanctity of unborn life and the rights of unborn children. The court, whose members are all elected Republicans or appointed by a Republican governor, further found that there was no unwritten exception for frozen embryos outside of a woman's uterus. Chief Justice Tom Parker drew widespread attention for his overtly religious concurring opinion in which he wrote that the state constitution includes the theologically-based view that human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God. Now that poses another question. Should a justice, especially one who sits on the bench of a state Supreme Court, uh, be taking a, a, a strong and obvious religious stand on this and write that in his, his or her opinion? I'd love to get your take on that. Well, according to Reuters, it's not yet clear, but IVF providers are very concerned about the implications of the ruling. IVF treatment typically involves the creation of multiple embryos in order to maximize the chance of a successful pregnancy, leaving some unused. At least three providers, the defendant in the case, the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System, and Alabama Fertility, have all said they're pausing IVF treatments, citing potential civil and criminal liability in the wake of the decision. 
And then there's this, uh, how this decision is impacting GOP lawmakers. It's leaving them in a quandary. Here's what The Hill is reporting. That ruling that frozen embryos are children is putting Republicans in a bind, forcing them to distance themselves from some of the decision's sweeping consequences. It has put GOP politicians who oppose abortion rights but back IVF in a complicated position, according to The Hill, forcing them to awkwardly explain why they may disagree with the ruling, even as some of them say they believe embryos are babies. And it all comes as the GOP has largely been playing defense on the political field since the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, overturned the Roe v. Wade decision two years ago, which led a number of states to impose severe restrictions on access to an abortion. Republicans have repeatedly been on the losing side of elections with abortion on the ballot ever since, and we talked about that on this show. The president's campaign, that's Mr. Biden's campaign, is expected to make abortion a central part of its messaging this fall, an approach likely to be copied by Senate and House candidates around the country. GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley reflected the awkward position for Republicans last Wednesday when she told NBC she supported the decision and thought that frozen embryos made using IVF are babies. A few years later, Haley seemed to walk back uh, the initial comment, a few hours later, if I said a few years later, I meant a few hours later. She said, I didn't say that I agreed with the Alabama ruling. She said this on CNN. But she added she still believes an embryo is an unborn baby. Then on Thursday, Haley told CNN she believed the court ruled correctly under state law, but Alabama needs to go back and look at the law. Senator Tim Scott, a Republican also from South Carolina, as is Nikki Haley, who's being talked about as a potential running mate for former President Trump, evaded the question. Here's what he said. Well, I haven't studied the issue, but uh, he said that before taking a jab at Haley when he went on to say, I'm going to let Nikki Haley continue to go back and forth on that. Well, veteran GOP strategist and former Republican National Committee spokesman Doug Hay said hardline conservatives found themselves in a box just like after the ruling overturning Roe v. Wade was leaked. He said if people haven't gone through IVF, they don't understand it. He said most United States senators haven't. And if you're a Republican one, they just shoot from the hip with their answers, and that gets them in trouble. Now keep in mind, Hay is a GOP strategist. In an attempt to wrest control of the narrative, the National Republican Senatorial Committee on Friday told candidates to express their support for IVF, oppose restrictions on the treatment, and campaign on expanding access to it. All right, with that said, let's go to the phones. I know uh, John and Wyoming wanted to weigh in on this on Friday, and we were out of time. I think we uh, uh, were going into our segment with uh, Tim Blessing at the time my memory serves me right. John, good morning. I appreciate you calling in today. Hey, Bill, thanks for taking my call, and good morning to you. I really appreciate you covering this topic. Sure. So what are your thoughts hey, uh, on it? I'm an old man, but I've got a young family. And one of the reasons is um, it took many years, and I can't tell you how many thousands of dollars, uh, for me and my wife to conceive children. And um, this is obviously deeply personal to me, um, but I'm not unique, right? I know so many people uh, just in my small little community here in what I'm missing that have had similar issues. And, um, you know, I just think 
uh, you know, and I hate to make this political, but this Donald Trump said, I'm going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And all of these things that we're dealing with now have to do with Mitch McConnell, uh, uh, you know, saying we're not going to put Merrick Garland on the Supreme Court and Donald Trump saying I'm going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And here we are. And for folks that that aren't dealing with this, um, you know, every single uh, menstrual cycle is important. Any time that you're losing time, like I can't imagine being a couple in Alabama right now and being told that, you know, we're going to have to put your fertility treatments on hold right now because, you know, women are often injecting themselves with hormones, undergoing all kinds of, uh, you know, hardships to do this. And now for uh, a bunch of zealots who say, you know, these two cells, right, this fertilized egg has the same rights as uh, a human being. This is what happens when zealots are in control. And this is what happens when people can't. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I'm I'm. I would never get an abortion myself, but I would never make that decision for other people. And, uh, you know, when 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 we have a system where, uh, frankly, women aren't in control of their bodies, this is the kind of stuff that's going to happen. And, you know, I, people always say, oh, they're going to come after contraceptives next. And, and, you know, you'll hear people on the right say, oh, that's crazy. But, uh, I, I mean, it, it's I'm struggling to talk right now because of how personal this is for me. Um, Bill, I just I can't say how wrong this is. And uh, I would love. Well, I, I know that this is going to be front and center in the, in the campaign coming up, um, because if it can happen in Alabama, what's to say it can't happen in other places? Right. Well, let me ask well, you. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, John. And I appreciate your position on this. But you're referring to the, the, the ones who made this this ruling as zealots. But yet they're they're following the uh, what's written in their state's constitution. Uh, they're saying that there is no unwritten exception for frozen embryos outside of a woman's uterus in in their in that st- in that state's laws right now. So right now it's got to go back to the legislators uh, there in Alabama to to correct that. And and one can only hope that they do for those who who have the position like you and Richard that say that uh, that this ruling is wrong. Um, so to call them zealots, I think, is is an overreach here. Well, Bill, I mean, to, to say that two cells uh, that are frozen in a test tube have the same rights as uh, a child, I, I think that's a bit of an overreach, too. I mean, let's be realistic. I understand there has to be a line that's drawn at some point, but two cells that are frozen, I'm sorry, that's not, that's not a person. All right. Well, I appreciate your input on this. Was there anything else you wanted to add there? Uh, I, I just would like to add that. No, not really. Um, yeah, I just appreciate you covering this topic. And I think it's important. Um, you know, a lot of times these things suss out in ways that we don't fully understand. And, uh, you know, again, frankly, we wouldn't be having this conversation if, uh, if, if Merrick Garland was on the Supreme Court. All right. Uh, and again, we're this particular topic we're talking about now only impacts Alabama. It's not like it's impacting the entire United States. Well, uh, Bill, and, and it's uh, yeah, and, you know and it goes, John right? and, and Alabama it, gets it than, than some others. Well, let me ask you this. Well, all right. Let me ask you this. Why? Why are you upset about this when California creates rules that uh, that comes from their legislature, not their court system? 
and it impacts the entire United States. I'm talking about environmental rulings like uh, catalytic converters in cars. You, you know darn full well that Detroit, when they create cars, they're not going to. They're not going to build. Can I, let me finish for a minute. They're not. They're not going to uh, produce cars just for California. It's for everybody. So now, California's rulings impact all of us. Yet I don't hear any complaint from you on that. Because so we're talking about my family versus catalytic convertible. Yeah, but how? Again, so again, but but again, John, and I and I'm trying to debate you. I'm not arguing with you. Again, okay. you're in Pennsylvania. This ruling in Alabama does not impact you or 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 anybody who lives here in Pennsylvania. That's what I'm trying to get at. So is that how we're going then? We're going to have states where you can, I guess it is, right? States where you can have fertility treatment, states where you can't. Well, again, um, it goes, it goes back to, to the... ourselves along those lines, right? It goes back to the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in June of 2022, where they said, as far as abortion is concerned, that it, it goes back to the states to decide, not for the federal government. And, you know, and you, you said... It's wrong for me to call these people zealots because they're following the law. The laws were written by zealots, Bill. These these people. Well, I mean, I I understand how you can be pro-life, and I, I support that. But forcing your opinion onto other people, forcing women to have babies when they are, you know, sick and their and their babies are going to die outside of their womb, forcing kids to, you know, have the children of their uh, incestual rapists. That's not yeah, I, what this law is about. Yeah, John, I, under, happens, John I, I, I understand your position. I understand your position, but I think you misunderstood what, what I said. The, judge, the judges had to decide based on what their state's laws, how their state's laws are currently written. So they, the judges can take into account the implications. Our own judges, like the Supreme Court does that all the time. That's just, you know, they, they claim to be textualists until, uh, you know, until they're ruling on that text that uh, Colorado interpreted and said Trump was an insurrectionist. I mean, but is it a court's is it a court's role to create law? It's a court's role to interpret law, to interpret, but not create. That's the legislature creates, right? Okay. That's All right. So we'll, we'll leave it at that because I've got to go for a commercial break. John, thank right. you. Thank, yeah. I, again, I, if I didn't have two guests on Friday, I would have discussed this topic on Friday hey, and I, would have taken I, your call. I know, but you had a good conversation going about cyber attacks, and I didn't want to just come in the middle of that with a whole different topic and, and, and railroad that. So no, no problem. Thanks All right, buddy. Time. Thanks for calling in today. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye now. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with more of this Monday edition of Feedback. You're on air Town Square in just a bit. Stay with us. Serving Collegeville, North Wales, King of Prussia, and all of Montgomery County. This is News Talk 830 WEEU. And now back to Feedback with Bill Saunders on 830 WEEU, the voice of Berks and Beyond. Well, I sacrificed this weekend to get my taxes done. (laughs) 
That is a yearly chore that I do not like doing. I know it's got to be done. But yesterday, I took the entire day to do my federal tax return, my state return, and my local return. So it's over with. Breathe a sigh of relief now. And I'm actually getting a refund from the federal government. A nice one, too, actually. I was kind of surprised at that. And as always, I owe the state some money, but uh, not, not a big deal. So I'm just glad that it's over with for another year. And I still and I use one of those tax preparation software uh, services that you would think uh, make it a lot easier. But still, I've got paper all over the place uh, of, of, uh, of all of my investments and stuff like that, just so I've got it handy uh, when I need to answer questions. And, it, and it's still a chore, no matter what you do. Anyway, uh, I'm still taking questions on that Alabama Supreme Court decision. If you'd like to weigh in on that uh, uh, in vitro fertilization uh, story that we talked about. But right now, I want to talk about something else here that I saw in Penn Live. Uh, and, and it pertains to uh, the governor. When it comes to marijuana legalization, Governor Shapiro envisions Pennsylvania being the first state in the nation to put its agriculture department in charge of this new industry. So hear this. After all, he sees cannabis as a potential new cash crop for our farmers, he says, and considers it to be part of his economic development strategy for the state. Now, our agriculture secretary is Russell Ratting. He told the House Appropriations Committee last Thursday he's excited about this opportunity for his department to take on this assignment, and he's grateful the governor has the confidence in his department to handle it. Now, in a minute, we're going to talk about some legislators who have concerns about this. But Penn Live is reporting confidence grows out of having monitored the lessons learned in Pennsylvania's adjoining states that have legalized adult-use cannabis and the Agriculture Department's experience in introducing industrial hemp, Redding is quoted as saying. Uh, he spells his last name R-E-D-D-I-N-G. Further, he says... We take the vote of confidence in what we've done around plant and animal and food and experiences with regulations, and all of that is transferable, Redding went on to say. He referred to his department's role in the proposed cannabis program as the quarterback of a team that will involve a lot of other players, including the governor and legislators. But Republican committee members seemed unconvinced that agriculture is the right agency to regulate it. Uh, Clint Olet is a Republican from Tioga County, a uh, state lawmaker from uh, Tioga County in the House, and he said the following, It seems like this is going to be a very large, complicated project for you to be working on in the Department of Agriculture, he told Redding. He went on to say, It does seem a little odd to go to the Department of Agriculture. Well, Redding didn't downplay the effort that would go into launching the program, calling it a huge task. No question about it. But he added the following. I don't want to forfeit any economic opportunity for Pennsylvania agriculture. He said it isn't often when a new crop is introduced and said, and I quote, we re we're really good at growing things. For it to work, though, Redding told the committee, and I quote now, it's got to be really resourced well with the right personnel, leadership, and structure. Representative Natalie Mahalik is a Republican from Allegheny County. And she, he, he asked, or she asked, if the $5 million included in the governor's budget to administer this program was sufficient. Redding answered by saying he considered that to be a marker. 
and referred questions about how that amount was arrived at to the governor's budget secretary, who is Uri Monson, uh, when he comes before the committee on March 7th. Republican members expressed frustration about the governor's proposal to help fund his $48.3 billion budget came forward without providing legislative language to implement it for them to vet. That confidence grows out of having monitored the lessons learned in Pennsylvania's adjoining states that have legalized adult-use cannabis and the Agriculture Department's experience in introducing industrial hemp, Redding answered. Further, he said, we take the vote of confidence in what we've done around plant and animal and food experiences, experiences with regulations, and all of that is transferable. Uh, so that's the governor's answer. He wants to legalize marijuana so it can become a cash cow for the state. Uh, the only difference here, I mean, the only difference between what uh, Shapiro is doing and what other states have done that have legalized marijuana is that he wants to put it into the Department of Agriculture, have them manage this. But every other state that's legalized marijuana has used as their rationale for it to bring in more revenue for the state. Is this appropriate for the state to do this? Or do you think that this is a problem uh, for us going forward? I'd love to hear from you. Our numbers here are 610-374-8800, toll-free, 888-401-0459. So we've got uh, a couple of issues on the table to talk about for the next hour uh, as hour number one comes to a close. Before we close out this hour, however, I want to share this with you from Hill. They're reporting that congressional leaders are trading blame as both sides struggle to strike a bipartisan deal to stave off the threat of a partial government shutdown there in Washington. Lawmakers have until March 1st to pass legislation to fund the Departments of Agriculture, Energy, Transportation, Housing and Urban Development, and other offices for fiscal year 2024 or risk their first partial government shutdown in years. Leaders were expected to announce an announcement this past weekend on potential next steps as spending talks continued over the current recess. But leaders on both sides said yesterday that more work is needed for both sides to reach a compromise. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said yesterday that lawmakers hope to have legislation ready this weekend to give members time to review text. But he ended up pinning the blame on House Republicans shortly after, saying it's clear the party needs more time to sort themselves out. He says we are mere days away from a partial government shutdown on March 1st, and unless Republicans get serious, the extreme Republican shutdown will endanger our economy, raise costs, lower safety, and exact untold pain on the American people. Schumer wrote that in a letter to lawmakers on Sunday. But House Speaker Mike Johnson pushed back on Schumer's comments. He said despite the counterproductive rhetoric in later Schumer's letter, the House has worked nonstop and is continuing to work in good faith to reach agreement with the Senate on compromise legislation, funding bills in advance of the deadlines. Leader Schumer's letter fails to mention that many of the points still being debated come from new Democrat demands that were not previously included in the Senate bills. He added, at a time of divided government, Senate Democrats are attempting at this late stage to spend on priorities that are farther left than what their chamber agreed upon. With that said, we'll take a break and we'll be back with more feedback in a bit. The Voice of Burks and Beyond. 
Welcome back as we kick off our number two of Feedback. You're on air, Town Square, here on the voice of Berks and Beyond, News Talk 830 WEEU. Good morning, everyone. I'm Bill Saunders, along with Sean Tansky. Our phone numbers here are 610-374-8800 or toll-free, 888-401-0459. And the email address here is feedback at 830weeu.com. All right, uh, so in the first hour, we were talking about that uh, decision made by the Alabama Supreme Court uh, impacting uh, certain uh, providers down there in Alabama from being able to continue using in vitro fertilization. Uh, and I'd love to get your take on that. And, of course, we, we discussed how that's leaving the Republican Party scrambling with how to address that, given their position on, uh, on abortion. And uh, we also talked about uh, Governor Shapiro wanting to legalize marijuana and give the responsibility of that over to the Agriculture Department uh, in, in order to give a new cash cow, a new cash crop for our farmers here in the state. Uh, do you agree with that? Do you believe that uh, uh, marijuana should be legalized here? And uh, the reason being that it would bring more revenue into Harrisburg. Again, our numbers are 610-374-8800 or toll-free, 888 But right now, we're going to go to the phones. Bob in Leesport wants to talk. Bob, is it, uh, is it Dr. Blessing you want to talk about or, or, or someone no, else? Uh, it was actually during Dr. Blessing's. Uh, somebody brought this up while uh, he was talking on the radio. They said uh, the reason that a lot of people are apathetic concerning citizenship and history is because teachers only require students to memorize dates and facts without ever asking the question why. And I thought to myself, boy, that is not how I taught my history classes. As a matter of fact, on the first day I had the kids in school, I would ask the question, why do you even have to come to this class? I say, I mean, I can see a reason for practical subjects like math and English. That's computation and communication, but history, really? I mean, why do your parents even pay me to teach something like this? Oh, that would get them started. They'd start talking, and somebody would say, yeah, that's right. Why do I even have to come to this class? <laughs> so I would reply, for the same reason you failed math last year. <laughs> and the student would say, no, I didn't fail math last year. And I would say, aha, that's why we keep records. That's your history. I <laughs> I had a lot of my teachers tell me I'm history, too. <laughs> but they meant it from a different standpoint, I think. I said, yeah, if, if you fail, I said, if you did fail math, you'd want to correct your mistakes, right, so you don't repeat them. So then we'd get off onto that. And other reasons somebody bring up, maybe you get to understand people better and uh, you preserve your heritage. And then I would tell them this. I'd say, imagine this. What if you were kidnapped by terrorists and driven around for several hours with a blindfold on, and finally in the middle of the night, they pushed you out the back of the van on a lonely road, and by the time you untied your hands and took off your blindfold, you would have no idea where you were or which direction to start walking. And the reason is you'd have no idea where to go because you had no idea where you had been. So that's the same problem people who don't want to learn history have. Their minds have been kidnapped by apathy and um, you you need to understand the past in order to understand the present and find direction for the future. 
And is it really, Bob, is it really a, a history teacher's responsibility to, uh, to help alleviate this apathetic uh, uh, thought process that, that is going on today? Oh, I think it's, uh, it's important. I mean, listen, you have to be half entertainer. You have to be a policeman. You have to be a judge. You have to be jury. I mean, you have a lot of hats to wear when you're a teacher. And uh, I would then go over the door. I'd open the door real quick. I'd look out in the hallway both ways, and I'd slam it shut real fast. And some kids would say, why did you do that? I said, well, why don't you open the door and find out? So they would go, and they'd open the door, and they'd say, the hall's empty. There's nothing there. And I said, and aha, you would have never found out if you didn't take the time to open that door. You wouldn't know why I did that. And I said, one of the reasons I did that was, did you notice that that door moved on three hinges? And that's like history. It moves on certain important turning points we call dates. So to understand history, you will have to learn some key dates this year, which are turning points. So for tomorrow, I'd give them a time. I want you to draw a door with three hinges on the right side, and I want you to start at the bottom and put in order some important dates in your life. I said, uh, so what do you think the first hinge should be labeled? And then somebody would say, oh, your birthday. That's right. <laughs> your starting point, the birthday. And then I would say, does anybody know the birthday of the United States of America? And there was usually somebody who was July the 4th, 1776. I said, that's right. Certain dates are so important, like your birthday, you have to know the day, the month, and the year. But for other dates, we just need to know the approximate time. The year was good. So besides your birthday, put down two other important dates or years in your life, like they could be trips you took or pets you received or you began to play or music lessons or something other important memorable moment in your life and, and write them down and then I would say so tomorrow we're gonna take some time if you'd like to share with the class uh, to look at some of your history and that's how you get them involved at the beginning no I, mean, I like that after a while kids would come to my class they'd oh man I can't wait to come to history it's my favorite class of the day how about that and, and you would just uh, realize you know uh, if you engage the kids, you got to get them involved. You you can't be their enemy, and you got to at the same time you keep order. Now, while you're on the phone, I want to get a young person's take on this. Uh, Sean, uh, you you uh, clearly uh, the years that you were in school were a lot uh, closer uh, to today than than when I was in school. Did you find uh, that uh, that what you learned in history was was beneficial to you? Was it adequate, in other words? Oh, yeah. No, uh, I, I was very blessed both in high school and in the few history courses I took uh, in college that I enjoyed going to those classes. And that's because, you know, I find history enjoyable, but also because I think my teachers uh, went at it the right way. Uh, and I'm agreeing with what Bob's saying. It's like history is the only way to know about the present. Like if you want to know what's happening today, you need to know about what happened then. And I always like that perspective, and I think that's a really important uh, uh, thing to understand. I think history is very important. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'd love to get the in, the input from the young people, Bob. Sure. Hey, I remember one time I, I they, they put a remedial – actually, he was a Down syndrome child in my top class, and they, they thought that kids should be – this was an inclusion thing where all students should be in regular classrooms. 
no special ed uh, in, per se for things like history. Well, that was very hard to teach, but I remember I used to make special t- tests for him, like uh, Christopher Columbus used what to come to America? And I would have like a car, a rocket, and a sail ship. <laughs> and he, he was able to, and I remember coming over to his desk. I'll tell you some things you'll never forget. I came over to his desk, and he had his hand raised. I said, Matt, are you having trouble? And he grabbed my arm because I, I had my arm down on the desk, and he wouldn't let go. Oh, wow. He, he said, I love you. Oh, my. <laughs> and he just kept holding it. Oh, and I wow. Said, I, I've got to go and help some other students, and he didn't want to let go. I said, oh. I said, you know, I love you, too. I said, you know who else loves you? And he says, uh, Jesus. Oh. <laughs> I said, that's right. I said, and he's with you right now. And I said, and he can help you, and I'm, I'm also right here in the classroom, so you got to let me go now, and I'm going to help others. <laughs> oh, my. I'll tell you, that was a very interesting class I had that year. But, you know, the, the kids in the upper class, the, uh, not the remedials, but the, the ones who are, you know, college prep, they handled it well. They took this kid sort of under their arms and, uh, and, and you know, understood why he was there. <laughs> How about that? It was an interesting year, I'll say that. All right, Bob. Well, thanks for your input today. I appreciate you taking the yeah. time to call in. Thing. All right, take care. Is important. You got. I agree wholeheartedly, buddy. Bye bye. All right, bye bye now. And yes, we'll have uh, Doctor Blessing on uh, uh, at least once each month because uh, I love it when he comes in. I always learn something new uh, when he's here, so uh, you can bank on that. That as long as he wants to do it, uh, Tim Blessing will be a guest on this show at least once a month uh, going forward. Uh, let's go back to the phones right now. Paul in Reading wants to talk about uh, legalizing marijuana here in the state of Pennsylvania. Paul, good morning. Welcome to yes. Feedback. Yes, there is a way for the state to get a lot of money from this marijuana issue without legalizing it. And that is a fine for illegal, for the recreational use of marijuana. I'd say maybe about a 1,040 times the state minimum wage or 50% of the person's annual income for the for using recreational marijuana that would give us the state the money from the use without legalizing it plus if the, if there's an additional fine of $100 per day after conviction when they don't when the user doesn't state who the supplier is. That would be a way of getting the money without legalizing it, without declaring it to be okay in the state's eyes. All right, so, uh, and as far as using it as a, as a method to get uh, revenue? Yeah, as a method to get revenue, Using fines instead of legalization with taxes, using the fines. All right, Paul. Well, thanks for weighing in. I appreciate your calling in. Yes, and I do have a question. Yeah. About these frozen embryos. Mm-hmm. Now that they're in a freezer, uh, I, it's my understanding that they're in a freezer, whose who's part of the body are they? I mean, they don't seem to be the part of anyone else's body, and the use of them, you know what I'm trying to get at. Are they part of anyone else's body now that they're frozen and in a freezer? 
I'm not a I'm not a legal expert, so I can't answer your question. I mean, to my way of thinking, they remain the property of the woman uh, whose eggs they are. Uh, but uh, the question here is, uh, does uh, a fertility clinic clinic have the right to destroy any unused embryos? And of course, as the as the article pointed out, and I said that earlier, uh, th- they always create multiple embryos here. Uh, just in case uh, a, a couple don't end up working, uh, that don't uh, result in a pregnancy, so they have to make contingency plans that way. Well, yeah, but my question is: now that they're separate from the woman's body, are they still part of the woman's body? Now that they're completely separate, miles away from the woman, is it? How could they be considered part of the woman's body? And 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 this is important in what way, Paul? Why, why is this important to you? Well, one justification for the slaughter of abortion is that a woman could do what she wants with her own body. But now that now that these frozen embryos are clearly no, not part of that woman's body, even that justification cannot be used to destroy these embryos. All right. Well, well, you know what I'm getting at. I, I guess I, I understand where you're coming from there, and 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 that is the legal twist here. I guess. Uh, would you say that that to be the case? Well, it invalidates the one. Uh, it if there, it means that the argument for their justification, that woman's body argument, is invalidated for these for these embryos embryos. Yeah, but again, because they create multiple embryos just in case the first few don't work and the woman doesn't become pregnant, if she does become pregnant, then what then uh, are we are they supposed to keep the remaining embryos forever? Oh. Uh, oh, uh, you're you're talking a situation that should never has been created and it's going what? to be it's going to be people of greater more knowledge than I have to answer that question. All right, we'll leave it at that. Paul, thanks for your call. I appreciate your opinion. Uh, okay, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Bye-bye now. I want to I want to share an uh an email with you that uh Kate from uh, Maxitani uh sent me. Uh and she says, "Gosh, but I hate when you bring up the medical marijuana issue. Well, first and foremost, Kate, I didn't bring up medical marijuana. This is recreational marijuana uh, that we're talking about, that the governor wants to legalize it uh, for uh, revenue purposes as a cash crop for the state. But anyway, as Kate goes on to say, all I can say is alcohol is legal and no one bats an eye about that. Alcohol can be extremely destructive in many cases, but it is legal. Legalizing weed is really no different. I've used it basically daily for many years. I now have a medical card. I own my own house, have worked in the same job over 30 years, and am very stable to the point of boring. It is wonderful as a pain reliever from arthritis, sleep aid, and stress relief as well. It's not for everyone, just as alcohol isn't for everyone. If it brings in much-needed state revenue, more power to it. As with alcohol, it needs to be used responsibly. 
Don't condemn something that genuinely helps so many because of your own misconceptions. Again, Kate, I appreciate your email, uh, but that's not the topic. Medical marijuana is not the issue, and I'm not taking one side or the other. I'm simply asking for the listener's take on this for recreational marijuana. And, of course, we're talking about just adult use of recreational marijuana. Uh, Should it be legalized here in the state? And uh, should Pennsylvania, like all the other states that have legalized it, used as their basis that it is a revenue generator? Our our numbers here, again, are 610-374-8800 or toll-free, 888-401-0459. So medical marijuana is not the issue in this particular topic. It's it's the use of recreational marijuana. All right, we'll take a break, and we'll be back with more of Feedback in just a bit. Stay with us. Serving Paoli, Glenmore, Coatesville, and all of Chester County, this is News Talk 830. W-E-E-U. Welcome back to Feedback on this Monday morning here on The Voice of Berks and Beyond. Remember uh, Claire McCaskill? Those of you who are into politics might remember her. She is the, uh, she used to be a a Democratic senator uh, from Missouri. Well, she's now an MSNBC uh, host, so to speak, there, uh, or an analyst, I guess I should uh, say, for MSNBC. And she was on the show uh, just a few days ago, uh, and she had a very interesting comment in reference to the New York Times and other media. She's actually demanding that the New York Times and other media stop fact-checking President Biden suggesting not enough attention has been given to former President Trump's purported vomits of lies, as she put it. So here's Claire McCaskill on MSNBC. Since the country learned, you wouldn't ever give this guy power again, would you? Tell us that he's not going to be reelected. Please tell us that you've learned your lesson. So the only blemish on the great country of America worldwide is, in fact, Donald Trump. And can I make a suggestion? I move that every newspaper in America quits doing any fact checks on Joe Biden until they fact check Donald Trump every morning on the front page. It is ridiculous yeah. that the New York Times fact checked Joe Biden on something. I mean, he vomits lies. Trump vomits lies. And he, every day, over and over and over again. And it's just ridiculous that the New York Times is doing a fact check on, on Biden while they let Trump, while they're numb to the torrent of lies coming out of Trump's mouth. Now, that's Claire McCaskill on MSNBC, and I'm rather surprised because uh, every time I read the newspaper, Donald Trump is constantly being fact-checked. So why shouldn't Biden be fact-checked? Anyway, uh, according to Fox News, while the New York Times reporter Angelo Fischera wrote that the Biden economy reportedly grew 3% in the past year, He added, and I guess this is what got Claire McCaskill upset, he added the president has also made misleading statements about taxation and the economy. The report listed several other Biden claims which were either flawed, false, or lack context. Well, back in July of last year, 
McCaskill also made headlines for her defenses of Biden after she claimed Republicans are trying to impeach him because of his love for his surviving son, Hunter. Here's what she said at the time. They're going to try to indict a father for loving his son, who has been addicted to drugs and or alcohol, without evidence of the father doing anything other than loving that son. Uh, That's what McCaskill told former Biden secretary, uh, press secretary Jean uh, Jean, uh, or Jen Psaki uh, on MSNBC. So there you have it. Uh, Love to get your take on on uh, Claire McCaskill's uh, take there that uh, the media should not uh, be fact checking President Biden. And speaking of Biden, he's still frustrated with the media overall. Here's what I got from The Hill, which is not a conservative publication, and neither is The New York Times, for that matter. But here's what The Hill is reporting. Months out from November's high-stakes election, the White House and the Biden campaign are going public with growing frustration about how the president is being portrayed in the media. Biden's camp is taking swings at press coverage of the incumbent as his re-election bid fends off persistent concerns about whether the 81-year-old is fit for another four years in the Oval Office. Is that not a legitimate question for the media to be asking? Democrats have been sensitive to media coverage of former President Trump compared with that of their own candidates dating back to the 2016 campaign when critics argued the press overhyped the controversy around then-Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton's private email server while giving Trump significant unfiltered airtime, reports The Hill. Now, some Biden allies see a similar pattern playing out in which reporters fixate on the president's periodic verbal slips and questions about his age, while his likely November opponent faces dozens of felonies and suggests he would undermine international alliances and crack down on immigrants and abortion access. The president's personal attorney last week penned an op-ed criticizing coverage of a special counsel report that commented on Biden's recall. And the New York Times' publisher said in a recent interview that the White House is extremely upset about reporting on Biden's age. Democratic strategist John Rennish said the following, The more this campaign and the more this White House takes the gloves off and gets aggressive, the better off they are. There have been many instances on many tough issues where they've been behind the ball and have not been nearly as sharp, nearly as persuasive, or nearly as aggressive as they could have been. Again, those are the words of Democratic strategist John Rennish. But then again, you've got people like um, Tim Blessing, who came on this show, and I agree wholeheartedly with what he said, that it was a big mistake for Joe Biden to go before the media uh, that one Thursday night following the release of the Her report and and get angry at the at the media with the public watching right there on national television. It would have been much better and it would have resulted in less follow up coverage if the White House had simply issued a press release, something to the effect of saying we accept the her report. We will work on ways to improve uh, the uh, uh, the problems that have been uncovered in this report, uh, although we disagree with a lot of what her said, and let it go at that. But no, he had to make a big deal out of it. And it came out later that Biden made the decision himself to go before the public that night against the recommendations of his own press people. So he's paying the price for that at this point.
All right, let's go to the phones. Let's head to Schwanksville, Montgomery County, and speak with Sue this morning. Sue, good morning. Good morning. Well, I had to weigh on, in on the IVF thing because it seems to be such a big topic this morning. And, um, you know, this idea of frozen embryos, since we've had them, it, nobody has really pushed it to this point that it, it was dealt with in, in Alabama. But I just want to call people's attention to the idea of uh, frozen embryos and divorces. Uh, and if you go, if you Google this topic, just if you were to Google, you know, frozen embryo divorce, who's suing who type thing, you'll find lots and lots of cases. Now, I just Googled this and there's a couple. This was a, this case was, this is in Yahoo News and uh, the title of, the, and it was November 15th, 2022 that this was published. Divorced couple fights over frozen embryos. She wants another baby. He doesn't. This couple had, when they first participated in IVF, they had three frozen embryos. They had two implanted. She had twins. They intended to always use that third embryo later on. Mm-hmm. Well, the couple had a divorce, and she wanted to use it to have another baby. Now, they're divorced, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't want it used. She said, okay, she'll hold him harmless financially. He doesn't have to pay for child support or anything like that. She just wants to have another child. They always intended to. And so the idea is, you know, he's arguing, I'm the donator of the sperm that created that embryo. Why is not my, you know, um, why aren't my feelings just as important type thing? And another case that I don't know if you remember, back in 2015, Sofia Vergara and her then-boyfriend, um, I think that they were engaged at the time, they had frozen embryos. And even though they broke up, he was suing because he wanted those embryos. Well, I don't think he got them. And I think in most cases, the man loses on this. But I, I could be just making that up. I'd have to really do a study to see. But in general, if there's a couple that is involved in making an embryo, if one of them doesn't want it to be a baby, Generally, they don't. The other person doesn't get to make it a baby, and they have. They can also donate that embryo to couples who can't have a child. That's one thing they can do. Um, of course, destroying them is the issue at hand. But there are lots of financial. I mean, there's lots of uh, legal issues around this when a couple breaks up. I read a story just as I've been waiting to get on the phone here. Um, about a gay couple who were her, both men who were divorced, and they had a frozen embryo that they had created with a donor egg, and they were fighting over who gets that embryo. So I don't think the answers are easy here. Well, let me ask you this, Sue. Back to the uh, couple who divorced, and uh, the man didn't want her to have uh, used that embryo, that remaining embryo, to have a baby she did. If she says to him that she's going to hold him harmless, that she'll never come to him uh, for financial assistance, what's the big deal then? Yeah, that's what I thought. But he says, they're both Catholic, by the way, too. And um, he says, well, that that's not how he rolled. He would want, if, if, a, if a child of his was, you know, basically on the earth type thing, he would feel like he, he had to be involved. He would feel like he wanted to be involved. He would feel that he had to pay for his child. So that was his argument. That well, if, if a child of his is born, he feels, you know, morally, you know, uh, required to be involved in it. 
All right, now you said something about uh, donating that embryo to a couple who can't have children. Was that part of the story, or did you share that as— No, no, that's just a separate issue as far as what I—you know, when when people go into the IVF situation, um, they have, you know, different options, and, and, you know, uh, donating it to another couple is one of them. I think that it's in the paperwork when you go to an IVF clinic— um, that, you know, what would happen to the, to the embryos, but, you know, yeah, so they could donate it. I don't know if people do that very often. I just wonder, I think most of the time they destroy them, you know, after a certain number of years and to keep them frozen, I think they do have to pay something for maintenance of that embryo. Well, let me ask you this. If let's say, let's do a hypothetical here. Let's say that, that same couple, ended up uh, donating that embryo to another couple, bringing that child into the world then. How is that okay uh, to the to the former husband in this case? But it right. wouldn't be if, if his ex-wife decided to uh, carry it to term and have a baby. I, that's, that's Absolutely. I agree. Yeah, no, he, would, he probably wouldn't be okay with it. And, and a lot of times uh, the reason that... Uh, uh, couples go to IVF is because uh, the man may not want to raise an adopted child. You know, some people really want it to be their you know, offspring. So, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't think that he would agree to donate it to anyone either. So his only, his only option would be to destroy it. And I remember hearing another case, this is what I was trying to look it up while I was waiting to get on the phone with you, of a couple that was divorced and there was a frozen embryo. She did not want to have, you know, she wanted to destroy it. And he was remarried to a woman who couldn't have children and he wanted it. Well, now that's not going to, that's not going to fly. See, here's all of this, all of this is an example, Sue, in my estimation, and and I'd love to get your take on this. But in my estimation, it's, it's a case where science is creating a lot of situations, a lot of pressure points for our society uh, that that maybe we shouldn't be involved in, uh, and and creating problems that wouldn't have existed otherwise. Well, you know, we've gotten ahead of ourselves scientifically on lots of things that we don't have the emotional anything to to have done. But as far as I'm concerned, my view on this is, you know, it's it's an embryo. It's probably 16 cells or less. Now, uh, as far as the abortion thing goes. Um, um, unless you're someone who is dead set against any abortion at any time uh, and you believe that life begins at conception, which I think there's uh, fewer people are that are in that camp than the camp that says, okay, um, an abortion is okay as long as it's not viable, you know, like the, like the first trimester or something like that. And if that's your view on it, then this it would be fine to destroy the embryos because, you know, th- there's no way that's going to live outside the, the body of anybody. It's not a person yet, quote unquote, even though morally it may be. All right. We'll have to leave it at that. Sue, thank you. I appreciate your input today. OK. Have a good you. day. Bye bye. All right, Bye bye now. Matt and Shillington, I'll be with you in just a bit. We've got to take a commercial break, but I do want to remind you uh, this programming note tomorrow during the 10 o'clock hour. I'll be joined by Reading's new police chief, Elias or Eli Vasquez, will be my guest. That's during the 10 o'clock hour here on Feedback tomorrow. Hope you'll tune in for that. 
In the meantime, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with more of today's edition of Feedback in just a bit. Serving Myerstown, Fredericksburg, Newmanstown, and all of Lebanon County. This is News Talk 830, WEEU. And now back to Feedback with Bill Saunders on 830 WEEU, the voice of Berks and beyond. Welcome back to Feedback here on News Talk 830 WEEU, the voice of Burks and beyond. Let's go back to the phones. Matt Gillingen wants to weigh in on this Alabama story on IVF. Matt, good morning. Welcome hey, to Feedback. Bill, good morning. First, sir, a, a very powerful call by John from Wyoming missing, as well as the subsequent uh, discussion you and he had. You know, Although this topic can easily be an academic discussion for you, me, and most listeners, you could tell John brought his personal experience and passion to the call because of the situation with his family. And uh, I enjoyed uh, you that both of you then discussing it. Uh, I thought it was very um, – um, it really brought some information which I hadn't even thought about. I, I did a little bit of homework this morning, Bill. First, the Alabama Supreme Court justices are elected for – six-year terms. I couldn't find information regarding do they, after six years, face a retention election or face an opponent. In contrast, I know the Pennsylvania Supreme Court justices are elected for 10-year uh, uh, terms. Regarding whether the Alabama court is made up of zealots, I can't say whether the majority are zealots, because as you said, uh, their ruling was fairly limited, you know, based on the Alabama Constitution and Alabama state law. However, Bill, I think a good argument could be made that Chief Justice Parker is a zealot. As you said correctly, he wrote what's called a concurring opinion, which means he voted along with the majority, but he voted with them for a different reason. And I saw this in several sources, but I'm quoting now from uh, Fortune magazine. First, the headline, quote, Alabama Supreme Court judge who helped strike down IVF cites the wrath of a holy God in his concurring opinion. Another quote here from Parker, human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God who views the destruction of his image as an affront to himself. I would offer this, Bill, you'd have to look long and hard to find those kinds of references uh, uh, in any court uh, opinion. So I said I think uh, uh, a debate team could say this guy is a zealot, although the majority opinion was pretty, uh, pretty narrow. Yes, Bill, I think you, you, you covered it pretty well. IVF is still legal in Alabama, but what the court decision did was create a, a quandary. You know, think about it for a moment, Bill. The couples want the procedure. They want to have the babies, but now some clinics, I think I found at least two of them uh, uh, when I looked over the weekend, two of them are suspending the procedure because the couples could now sue them if the embryos are destroyed. And it's an, I, I heard it. 
it's a, a very expensive thing to, to store these embryos. So what, what takes place is, you know, the court made its ruling, which is what its job is, but now you're, you're stuck where, you know, people want to do it, but the, I don't know how you could find some, you know, solution, uh, because, again, they called the uh, embryos, destroying them, a wrongful death, which, Bill, as you know, is the equivalent of, let's say, a surgeon makes a mistake on this uh, uh, on the operating table and the patient uh, dies. The uh, surgeon could be sued uh, for causing the death of that person when it shouldn't have, uh, have happened. So uh, that's the quandary. I, I have no idea how this is going to play out now. I think you made a good point, but, you know, I... It, could it happen anywhere else? Uh, I wouldn't bet on it. Certainly it would not happen in Pennsylvania. But I would throw this out to you. What if Josh Shapiro hadn't crushed Doug Mastriano in that governor's race in 2022? I hope no one's forgotten Mastriano campaign, uh, campaign on he would, I forget how many weeks, but he would uh, have a ban on abortions with no exceptions for incest um, uh, rape, etc. So it's something, you know, Bill, it's 1,200 miles away, but I don't think, uh, I think we always have to be on our own guard as to what uh, could happen. So, hey, Bill, if you and our new producer find a way to, to make everyone happy in Alabama on how they can get out of this, you might get a prize for that as well. <laughs> All right, okay? now, now let me ask you this, yeah. and, and again, this is a legal question, and sure. if you don't want to answer it, I, I, I can understand because I certainly can't answer it. This raises the question, this whole IVF uh, thing raises the question, whose property is that embryo? Yeah. Uh, that, you know, is I it the, proper, is it the property of the fertility clinic, or does it remain the property of the couple? Oh, well, again, Bill, I would have to think, again, I'm no legal expert, but just the way the court ruled, it is the property of the couple, because if it weren't the property of the couple, they could not sue the clinic for making a mistake. Sue brought a good thing in there. Uh, uh, I don't know how this would play out on divorces, et cetera. I do know. When the man and the woman have a different opinion, Bill, the courts have ruled it's the woman's body that she would have ultimate control over whether or not to continue a pregnancy. But again, this is a whole new world here with uh, embryos and vitro fertilization. May I end by saying stay tuned? Huh? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Have a good day. Matt, Matt. thanks for your call. I appreciate it. All right, and uh, that wraps up hour number two. It's, it's incredible how fast these hours go by when uh, – uh, when we're addressing uh, uh, very interesting topics here. Uh, so we're going to take a break. We'll be back uh, with the final seconds of hour number two in just a bit. And don't forget, we're going to switch uh, gears here coming up in the third hour because I'll be joined by some folks from the Karen Treatment Center here in Berks County, as well as from the Council on Chemical Abuse. And we're going to discuss supporting addiction recovery through culturally appropriate approaches. That and more when feedback continues on this Monday morning. News, weather, and traffic. It's a source I can trust. A new generation of talk. News. Welcome back as we kick off the third and final hour of this Monday edition of Feedback here on uh, the News Talk Station, 830 WEEU, the voice of Berks and Beyond. Good morning, everyone. I'm Bill Saunders, along with Sean Tansky, and our phone numbers here are 
374-8800 or toll-free, 888-401-0459. And for the next hour, I'm going to be joined here by some folks from the Karen Treatment Center here in Berks County and from the Council on Chemical Abuse to discuss supporting addiction recovery through culturally appropriate approaches. And before I introduce them to you, let me give you a little background here. February is Black History Month, an annual celebration of achievements by African Americans and a time for recognizing their central contribution in U.S. history. It's also important to recognize that historical events African Americans have experienced have resulted in physical, mental, and in many instances, economic uh, deprivation. Black communities experience traumatic events at a higher rate than any other racial group. The phenomena of historical trauma, race-based trauma, and intergenerational trauma all contribute to this high incident rate. When trauma is undiagnosed and or untreated, other sociological, physical, and mental conditions can occur. Incidents of violence, deterioration of physical health, and poor health behaviors can be attributed to trauma. People of color have faced higher rates of substance abuse than their white counterparts, yet they are less likely to access treatment. Other data tells us that African-American adults are 20% more likely to experience mental health issues than the rest of the population, yet only one in three black people who need mental health care receive it. Suicide rates are higher for black people, especially teenagers. African-American teenagers are more likely to attempt suicide than are white teenagers, 8.3% versus 6.2% to be exact. With me to talk more about trauma and its impact on the African-American community is Dr. Ramona Roberts. She's Senior Executive Director of the Regional Outpatient Services at Karen Treatment Centers. Greg Day, Drug and Alcohol Counselor at the Outpatient Services Karen Treatment Centers. Sharon Tessera, Drug and Alcohol Counselor at Outpatient Services Karen Treatment Centers. And Yvonne Stroman, Community Program Specialist at the Council on Chemical Abuse. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the program today. Good morning, morning, Bill. Nice to have all of you with us today. Boy, that was nice in harmony. Everybody said that. (laughs) I like that. All right, let's let's start off, uh, first of all, uh, sharing what services are provided at Karen Outpatient Services. We offer a number of services, including substance use, gambling, mental health, specifically trauma. Um, we offer a number of different levels of care, from okay. intensive outpatient programming to your outpatient programming. So anywhere from something where it's three times a week you're coming in down to one time a week. We have psychiatry services as well. And we do um, offer treatment for both teens and adults. Okay. How young? Can you give us some history here? What's the youngest patient you've ever had? Do you know? 13. 13. 13. We're licensed for 13 and up. Wow. Do Do you tend to get a lot of teenagers here in Berks County? We have had a number of teens. Um, we've, ha- we've had teens come from outside of Berks County as well, um, but we've had a number of teens, um, and for the most part, it's been for substance use with co-occurring mental health issues, um, in particular co-occurring trauma. Um, but we also now have our mental health license, so we can take primary mental health issues. So someone can come to Karen Outpatient Treatment Center if they don't even have a, a history of substance use, which that wasn't the case before. Okay. So now we're seeing teenagers and our adults but since you asked about teens coming in for depression anxiety ptsd 
Um, oh, wow. Specifically, you know, those those are probably our, our most frequent uh, presentations. And the treatment that you provide, is it just for the individual affected or also family members? We can provide family um, sessions as indicated and as needed. Mm-hmm. For the most part, what's requested is for the individual. So we'll work with it however we need to. Now, you mentioned uh, that uh, it can be up to, what, three days a week that they get treatment? Someone, Yeah, someone can be in our intensive outpatient programming, which is three days a week. Um, Someone could be in outpatient level of care, which is a once a week group, let's say, Mm -hmm. or maybe once a week individual, or maybe they come to group and individual, or they're coming to group and seeing the psychiatrist. Um, So they could be with us anywhere from, you know, one day to up to three days a week, typically. Uh, All right. And where are you folks located in Burns? We're on 845 North Park Road in Wyomissing, and we are also right off a bus route. We have a a bus station uh, right in front of us. Okay. All right. So let's talk about some of the barriers to treatment for African-Americans. Who wants to tackle that issue? Well, I I could speak to it for a little bit based on the Council on Chemical Abuse. And uh, sometimes when we are getting phone calls, there are folks who might indicate that, you know, uh, Dr. Roberts had mentioned the frequency and the time frame for treatment and those are basically recommended level of care. So um, individuals might say they don't have time because of work. Work okay. won't allow them to go to group or go to out, intensive outpatient counseling for the amount of hours that they have. Uh, others might feel as though um, they this is something that they just want a quick fix. What's the recipe, Bill? Uh, if I do this, this, and this, am I okay? Am I fixed? And some family members might think that they're fixed as well. And so if it doesn't uh, coincide with what they think treatment looks like versus what is recommended to them by the therapist or by the individual that's doing the evaluation for their assessment, uh, that might keep them away from seeking treatment. But we also have to acknowledge that uh, growing up in some families, uh, and I'll use my own family as an example, where you don't necessarily go outside of those doors and talk about what's happening behind closed doors. And so you have the uh, idea that it's uh, to be kept silent, that we don't talk about what's happened behind closed doors. Uh, and then you also have the thought of, um, you know, from a religious aspect, well, um, God will treat this. This is something that you go to the church, you talk about it with the pastor or the first lady, uh, they will take you to the altar and pray over you. And so then thereby, you know, there's a, a, a thought that you're well now. Uh, the demons have been exercised, if you will. So these are just a couple of examples. Mm -hmm. There might be another host of examples based on the individuals and their own personal experience and background. All right. So so let's let's feed off of that for a minute. How do you overcome the stigma and the religious aspect that you that you talked about there, Yvonne? Who wants to address that? I'm glad you brought that up. I think the best way to kind of like overcome it now is know that we're not eliminating the spiritual component. Okay. Treatment is going to be worked, this, the treatment component be worked with in, in addition to. Okay. So, you know, continue to stay spiritually connected, continue to go to church. Um, and you'll often hear that a lot now that uh, at a lot of churches, they'll really endorse 
you know, going, getting involved in therapy. Okay. So I think that's what's important, too, because, again, especially in the African-American community, whether it be Christianity or Islam, that's a huge piece of who we are. Mm-hmm. But this is just an added component as well as that. And from a milieu perspective as well, too, our groups, we offer t- groups in the morning as well as in the evening. So we try to provide some a level of flexibility around work schedules as well as transportation. Okay. Now, you addressed the religious aspect. How about the uh, stigma uh, aspect that uh, Yvonne uh, shared with us? How, how do you folks address that? Well, point? historically, African-American people, Af- people of African-American descent, we didn't, therapy wasn't designed for us. Why do you say that? That's just the, um, it's just kind of like the facts. Um, when you look at history, like, again, we held, we took care of everything. We dealt with our problems within the churches, you know? And then, like I said, there's that piece of privacy. Like we, you know, you don't, you don't deal with these types of issues outside of the, outside of the household and also the fear of judgment. Okay. The fear of judgment as well, too. And within our community, you, you, you'll hear Folks, I've, I've had the elders say, like, Greg, like, you know, just you don't need to go to therapy. And there's also that, that stigma that comes with it looks almost like a sign of weakness. And I think now what's happening is now that there's a lot of celebrities that are endorsing treatment. So I think that's help, helping to change that, that, that stigma when you see uh, various sports athletes that are, have admitted to being in treatment for years now. And I think that, that I, those ideals are beginning to change over time now. All right, let me ask you this. Why is it that stigma seems to be more of an issue for the African-American community than, say, for the white community? I, I would like to give a little bit of data, too, to give us a reference okay. point. Mm-hmm. So there was a recent study that showed about 63% of black people believe that having a mental health issue is a weakness. Um, when we look at pre, what was called pre-termination rates, um, Sue and Sue give the statistic that for white therapy clients, it's about, it hovers around 30%, meaning you leave treatment before you should be leaving treatment. So before you've gotten the progress, the met your goals, gotten the help you needed. For people of color, that jumps almost double to around 50%. Wow. Right? And so when we think about, as, as Greg mentioned, um, not being set up uh, for people of color, if we think, uh, we, we can probably name some historical significant pieces that impact this um, and then continue on into present day. So if you think about, for example, runaway slave syndrome, that was a diagnosis Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. diagnose why slaves were lazy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We have the Tuskegee experiments that were done, right? Mm -hmm. So we can point to big pieces Mm -hmm. um, to help us understand historically why there would be a complete mistrust of the medical and psychological field. And then when you bring it to present day, um, there is a lack of cultural competence. Um, So we look at training programs, for example. There's one required course in master's and doctoral programs, mostly. Um, I'm not going to speak for every institution. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's one required course on multicultural issues. One, One course isn't enough to become culturally competent. Um, And so what happens is a white clinician with a client who is a person of color can do a lot of harm, even unintentionally, because they are maybe not understanding the person's experience, the person's reality. 
they can invalidate, they can be very misunderstood. This all can lead to misdiagnosis. Um, so I think when you add those together, um, that, that has a lot of influence on why there's this, hey, I, I don't trust those people, I don't want to go into therapy, uh, not for me. So what, what do you say to somebody who says addiction is addiction regardless of the color of their skin? Well, how do you address that kind of criticism? Anybody want to tackle that? Well, I, I think uh, just from my perspective, you got to look at how does that manifest, Bill? Uh, while we can say addiction is a brain disease, that much we know through research and science. But when we're talking about the different elements of background, of the different elements of where that is rooted from, it can be one based on, you know, they do a what we call a biopsychosocial. So when you look at biology, mm -hmm. and when you look at the role that biology has played in individuals' lives, uh, that can contribute, but you also have to take a look at the historical generational issues that specifically African-American have faced. I mean, Dr. Roberts spoke about different elements in our history and whether we want to acknowledge and realize it or not, those things come forward. That history comes forward for us. I mean, we can take a look at uh, COVID and the number of black communities who did not want to get vaccinated based on an experiment mm -hmm. that happened decades ago. And there's relevance there. There's relevance and there's also validity to what people are feeling and thinking about that you have to infuse that in any element of counseling, any element of working hand in hand with people from a sociological perspective to say these things are relevant. These things are relevant and they matter and we not to acknowledge them and realize that there are certain undertones and elements that might keep folks from uh, experiencing uh, treatment. Um, if we're not willing to take a look at those barriers, then we further uh, we further distance than the reality of how we reconcile in helping people. Anybody want to add further to that discussion? I believe that's why it's so important that treatment be so individualized mm -hmm. as well, because the experience of a person who identifies as white versus a person of color is so vastly different because of these barriers. So it is important that we design treatment that is individual to each person coming through our doors. Okay. The treatment that you offer, strictly voluntary? Yes. So we're not talking about court-ordered treatment oh, here, or are we? Well, there are some folks that will come in with a mandate from court. Let's say maybe they're in drug court, DUI court. They might be in mental health court. Um, so they, they if I, I guess if I could word it this way, they are voluntarily agreeing to follow their court order, right? There's gotcha. still a choice okay. in that. I mean, okay. I still see it that way. That might just be a personal thing. But they have a choice whether to follow their mandate or to say, you know, I don't want to do that. Then I'll serve my time or whatever else their consequence may be. So everyone does have that voluntary presentation to mm -hmm. treatment. Okay. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a commercial break here, but before we do, let's uh, share some phone numbers, contact information, and web addresses. Let's start with uh, the Karen Foundation. Karen Outpatient Treatment Center is 484-345-4670 for our main front office line. And Coca Burks. And the Council on Chemical Abuse is 610-376-8669.
And we'll be back with them in just a minute. We're going to take a commercial break here. If you have a question for my guest today, feel free to call in with it, 610-374-8800 or toll free, 888-401-0459. More feedback coming away in just a bit. Welcome back to uh, Feedback. We're talking about a very interesting topic here, supporting addiction recovery through culturally appropriate approaches. And my guests this morning are Dr. Ramona Roberts, Greg, uh, Greg Day, Shannon Tessera. They're all with uh, Karen Treatment Centers, the Outpatient Services Karen Treatment Centers, and Yvonne Stroman, who's with the Council on Chemical Abuse. And uh, Dr. Roberts, uh, one of the things that, that you mentioned up front here is that there's only one course that's available to your knowledge that, uh, that references the cultural differences here when it comes to treatment. Um, share with us what you've experienced in that class, since you teach that class. Yes. Share with us your experiences in that class. Thank you. It's a, it's a tough course, I would think, for anyone that teaches this class because you're trying to compile in one semester so much history right? History of our field, how we have a lot of Eurocentric um, uh, design of how therapy should be, of how professional boundaries are, what Mm -hmm. defines boundaries. Um, All of that is through one lens. So we've got to bring in a lot of historical pieces. We've got to bring in the aspect of racial oppression. We've got to bring in the aspect of bias, all of us carrying bias around with us. Then we've got to find a way to bring in how do you actually provide counseling to specific Mm -hmm. cultural groups? So maybe that's looking at um, uh, someone who identifies as an Asian American, maybe someone who identifies as LGBTQ, maybe someone who identifies um, with disabilities. Many different cultural groups are really included in this class okay. and in a textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have a chapter on African Americans, and you have a chapter on uh, people who identify as Latinx or Latino, Latina. Um, it, it, you have chapters on different groups. That's a lot to accomplish. Right. Um, And I think it can be overwhelming. And we as professors can go into the course with so much we want to do. And we've got to realize that can be really overwhelming on the students who are trying to be clinicians. Mm -hmm. And and then I can understand why we have clinicians that are uncomfortable talking about race in session that are whether whether you're a person of color or you're a white counselor, it's it's just not something that is the norm. Um, and so people aren't taught how to do it. They're afraid to mess up. They're afraid to say the wrong thing. Um, and so then the conversation is avoided. And then what I try to teach in my classes is, if we as the clinician don't bro- broach the subject of race, that client is going to feel like they can't talk about it. They're going to have their own perceptions as to why I'm not broaching it. Maybe that leads to them mistrusting me. Maybe they think I can't understand them. Maybe they think I'm afraid of it. And that might be rightfully so. Maybe I'm afraid of the conversation, but that doesn't lead them to be all warm and fuzzy about now sharing their experience. So I, I do think there's a lot more cultural training that can be done to really help equip clinicians to feel confident, to feel competent, um, to be able to meet clients' needs. Why do you think we're now in the 21st century and still so many people are unaware of the importance of taking culture into uh, consideration when it comes to treatment? I think it's a big piece of it is fear. 
I think there's this level of fear when it comes to race that, one, I don't want to be labeled a racist. The other piece is also, I don't want to offend anyone. Mm -hmm. So rather than address what I'm feeling in regards to that anxiety, I'll be honest, I think there was a level, this topic, even in this room right now, I think we're warmed up now, there's a a thin layer of anxiety when the topic of race comes up. Mm -hmm. And I think that that anxiety kind of transcends like on a local level when you think about colleges only being only teaching one course uh, in a university again. So we're, again, where do those feelings go though? Mm-hmm. We have these feelings, but there's this, this big elephant, pink elephant in the middle of the room, right? Yeah. But nobody wants to address it in fear of, well, fear or offending someone. Do you think we'll ever overcome that? Uh, it's it's going to be a slow process, but it has to start somewhere. Right. And I think conversations like we're having right now will begin to break those cracks. Mm-hmm. We'll be, make cracks in opening up and allowing people to be vulnerable and discussing these, these this topic. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about uh, traditional approaches to helping individuals address their substance use disorder. Who wants to tackle that one? I think... Um, there has always been this belief that treatment is one size fits all, um, especially when we talk about traditional individual talk therapy or the 12-step program. Um, there's been this belief that it is a one size fits all and it'll work for everyone. But we understand now, especially when we consider cultural competence in our treatment, that that is truly not the case. There are so many other considerations that need to be taken seriously and taken into our consideration when treating every patient that walks through our doors, that we are meeting them where they're at and meeting their needs appropriately. Um, So kind of incorporating different non-traditional examples of therapy, whether that be sociometry and psychodrama, um, implementing different silly, funny group activities into treatment that kind of break the ice and break that level of fear in treatment as well. I think that's what matters most. Ethnodrama. What is it? It's an experiential trauma healing group designed, at least at our place, at Karen Outpatient Treatment Center, designed specifically for people of color. So it will incorporate, as Shannon mentioned, um, aspects of sociometry, psychodrama, narrative therapy, um, art, music, um, some aspects of psychoeducation and cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, but when she mentioned, you know, some of the traditional CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, has been kind of the gold stamp. Um, actually, when I teach it in my classes, I try to tell people, no, I'm not getting a kickback for saying this over and over, that CBT <laughs> is evidence-based for this diagnosis, right? Um, and I'm definitely a proponent of evidence-based um, uh, uh, techniques and evidence-based um theories and models and approaches. I'm trained in many of them myself. What I also need to continue to appreciate, though, is that there are some modalities that don't necessarily have evidence base. It could be due to lack of funding. They're not getting the focus um, uh, for research um, for a number of different issues. So I want to make sure that I don't 
just stand on that platform platform of make sure you get evidence-based treatment or have someone questioning, well, is this evidence-based? A number of things that we do are evidence-based, and a number of things are what's called practice-based. The APA, uh, American uh, Psychological Association, and the American Counseling Association have been talking about this actually a lot. I've seen it over the past year, two years, around bridging the gap between um, the science and practice of things, so practice-based um, and evidence-based. So how does ethnodrama differ from other clinical approaches to treatment? So ethnodrama is different because Bill's going to be interactive. There'll be a bit of moving around. Um, Ethnodrama actually really hone in on what we're feeling. So it won't be necessarily a group of people just kind of talking and just sharing their feelings. With ethnodrama, you're actually going to experience what you're feeling in the moment. Oh wow! Okay. So if I could, I'm, Bill, I'm a movie buff, so I, I got to share this with you. There's okay. a movie. There's a movie that came out in the '90s uh, called Boys in the Hood. Oh yes. Uh huh. All mm-hmm. right, Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a scene in Boys in the Hood where the main character, his name was Trey. Mm-hmm. He was pulled over by the police, right? And he was thrown on the top of his vehicle. Mm-hmm. They, they allowed him to go home, and then he went back to his girlfriend's house, who was played by Nia Long. I can't think of her name right now. But in that moment, Bill, Trey just gets out, out of nowhere. You could, you could just tell he was just full of emotions, right? He really had a visceral, rea- visceral reaction that he really didn't know what to deal with or how to deal with it, right? And just out of nowhere, he just starts swinging and throwing punches in the air and, you know, just kind of yelling things out, right? Mm-hmm. And then... After he kind of went through that experience, his girlfriend, played by Nia Long, just kind of embraced him, and he just broke down in tears. That's what ethnodrama is about, getting in touch with that piece. We're getting underneath the anger and getting in touch with the hurt and pain that we feel. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah. Wow. So so how how does that help compared to the clinical approaches then? How, How is that more effective? Especially in the topic that we're talking about here, how is that uh, more effective? An, uh, more effective an approach for African Americans than the clinical approach? I, I think it's a more effective approach because I think the African American community we have a hard time, we have difficulty articulating what we're feeling. We can des- we can describe and explain our anger, but we kind of suppress what we feel in regards to racial trauma. Like I said, this this group is going to create a space where we're going to be able to deal with... So Trey went through the experience of the anger, which was identified by punches. The hurt was identified by the tears. So I think it's a, it's a specialized clinical approach that, that really hones in and taps into what's underneath the iceberg, if you will, uh, of anger, which might be hurt, frustration, disappointment. How about fear? Feelings that are traditionally we haven't really been able to show over time. When you go, when you think about slavery, you know, when when you think about slavery, it was about survival. But there was a certain level of fear uh, that that came along with that that Harriet Tubman deal with in regards to the Underground Railroads of being killed, or you know, her she being killed, or the people that she was leading to freedom being killed. Mm-hmm. But she didn't have time to necessarily deal with that. We just have to get to the north. This is given an opportunity to deal with that fear that's never really been addressed, and it's really intergenerational. 
So it's fear as the result of society, would you say? I think that might be a piece of it. I think it might be a piece of fear as well as pain and disappointment. You know, it's, it's, you know, when it comes to, you know, when black people have interactions with police, there's a certain level of fear. Mm-hmm, right. Just being pulled over for a ticket. There's a certain level of anxiety that, that you may experience that, that may never get addressed. Mm-hmm. I think if I can add to, you know, there's a number of situations, uh, you know, whether someone is shopping in a store mm-hmm. and they're fear, they're fearing that they're going to be under constant surveillance surveillance. Um, I think um, we look at so if we look at traditional, let's say cognitive behavioral therapy, it can easily be misused, let's say, with a person of color where we're looking at reframing someone's thoughts and and I think easily it can get into something that could be harmful where we're almost reframing someone's reality of what happened right we can easily invalidate somebody where someone can come in and say something that they experienced and as the clinician I could say well maybe you're reading too much into that let's look at the situation from a different lens and I could be totally stealing away their experience of, of what really happened to them so I think our group is really aimed at trying to help people feel seen and heard and probably even most notably feel understood. I think this constant under th- this constant experience of being misunderstood, um, and there's a number of clinicians and research out there that will show that people of color live in a constant state of toxic stress. Those toxins then go and weaken the immune system, which is why in our symptoms on our flyer, we have a lot of physiological experiences. People have an increased risk for diabetes. Um, for If we're looking at females, fibroid uh, tumors, um, a number of different um, medical conditions that can be influenced by this constant state of anxiety, hyper-concern, hyper-vigilance, this kind of always on guard, um, wondering what's going to happen in this scene, walking into a situation and trying to figure out, am I safe? Is this a safe space? Is what I say going to be validated and heard? Maybe even in the workplace, there are these dilemmas that that someone goes through where it's like, if I speak up, am I going to create more noise? Is it going to be safe to share that this happened here at work, or will I be silenced, or can I lose my job? So to bring up um, these experiences, can really there's a lot of fear in that, right? What's going to be the consequence? And I think think in this group, all of these modalities are really there to just validate, normalize, and why it's a group is because we want to create this sense of community and collective healing. So people of color aren't traumatized only individually by oppression, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or intergenerationally, like they're traumatized as a group, right? So we need to heal as a group. and so I think there's a lot of that that we're trying to bring into these activities. So when Greg talks about the experiential piece and getting up out of your seat and being interactive with their peers in the group, it's to help create that sense of cohesion and community and safety, or at least we could say safe enough, where people can feel safe enough in this group space. Okay. We're going to take a commercial break. I hate to break up a conversation like this, but got, got to take care of a little bit of business here first. But before we do, Share with the folks how they can get in touch with uh, Karen Outpatient Services, and then let's go with uh, Coca Burks. Our front office for Karen Outpatient is 484-345-4670. And Coca Burks? And the Council on Chemical Abuse is 610-376-8669. And we've got Richard on the line who's got a question for you. Richard, hang, hang in there. I'll take your call first thing after the commercial break. We'll be back with more of feedback. You're on air, Town Square. 
here on News Talk 830 WEEU, the voice of Berks and Beyond in just a bit. Serving Tamaqua, Pottsville, Pine Grove, and all of Schuylkill County. This is News Talk 830 WEEU. Welcome back to Feedback. We're talking about supporting addiction recovery through culturally appropriate approaches. And I'm joined this morning by Dr. Ramona Roberts, Greg Day, and Shannon Tessera. They're all with the Outpatient Services Karen Treatment Centers. And Yvonne Stroman, Community Program Specialist with the Council on Chemical Abuse here in Berks County. And uh, we've got uh, Richard on the line who's got a question for you. Richard, thank you for holding on. Good morning. Welcome to Feedback. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I uh, just try to keep this short and quick and simple and easy. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're all on this planet. We're all living, breathing, and have different backgrounds. But we're all trying to be Americans of different ethnic groups and neighborhoods and communities and all this other stuff. And we all deal with life and stuff as it comes and goes. Now, whether we're addicted to water, drinking water, eating, sleeping, working, or those of us who fell into the trap, tobacco, alcohol, beer, coffee, tea, chocolate, no matter what it is, we all got different things we got to face. But if we don't face it together civilly, discussing like you're doing on the air now, instead of yelling, screaming, and all this other worse stuff, we're going to bring all of us up or we're all going to go down. Richard, I really appreciate um, you calling in. Thank you for that first. And I appreciate you um, in your compliment there of how we're discussing the topic here. Um, and you're right. We all experience things, right? Actually, if we look at the research um, w- without uh, parsing through uh, gender or race, um, about 70 to 90 percent of, uh, of people who come into substance use treatment actually have experienced trauma. Now, depending on where we look, there are some other research um, studies that will um, say that 90 percent of folks have experienced a traumatic event in their lifetime. Right. Um, and so that's almost all of us. Right. Uh, and. And, and I think it's really important to be able to provide those trauma services. And we do at Karen Outpatient. We actually do have trauma programming that's separate from this specific group we're talking about. So someone can come in to Karen Outpatient and go into our trauma program um, that maybe their history um, has domestic violence, maybe there's sexual assault, um, maybe there is traumatic loss. Um, we know that, and we can also provide individual therapy to help anyone who um, wants to come in for their traumatic experiences. We have a number of trauma-trained clinicians specifically for this. Um, the new group that we are offering, we did want to create a different space for this group in particular. Um, and I think it's very similar to what we learn from, we look at intergenerational research. For example, Rachel Yehuda um, actually is well known in research with Holocaust survivors um, and seeing how that gets translated epigenetically, passed down from one generation to the next with someone who didn't even live through it, right? With 
there's been research done with people coming back from war. So when we look at our vets here in our country and all that they've experienced, um, we need to be able to understand how that gets passed down to their children, right? They might not have been over there witnessing. You know, my um, grandfather um, was a bit of a legend in the military, and I know that all that he experienced in his time there uh, it has been passed down at an epigenetic level, right? So um, I agree with you. We, we all have pain and experiences and can relate on a human level in that way. I think what is really important for us is that to recognize all of that and to add on that specifically for people of color, we have unique um, experiences um, with other types of oppression and discrimination. Um, and I think one of the concepts that comes to mind that I, I think would be important for any listeners um, to be able to just think about is the term colorblindness. Um, and I'll actually acknowledge that when I was younger, I thought it was a good thing to be colorblind. I was someone who would say, you know, I don't see color. All of my friends, you know, my friend group and people who I date, it's all diverse. And, um, and what I learned um, very much from my experiences with friends, my experience in education, my experience in research, my experience just in relationships with people is that I had to change that view um, because if I don't see color, then I'm actually not seeing that person's experiences in their life and the maybe obstacles and challenges that they might go through. And then that actually leads to me having a decrease in my ability to empathize with them. Um, much like if someone looks at me and doesn't see me as a woman, then they're not able to consider the experiences I might go through as a woman and so on. So uh, I really appreciate you calling in with that. Richard, thank you again. I appreciated your call today. We're almost out of time, actually. We've got uh, less than a minute left. So uh, with that said, let's share with the folks how they can obtain additional information about your services. Who wants to address that? Um, so we uh, we can have you call into our main front office line, 484-345-4670. You can also reach out to any one of us. Um, Shannon, uh, her direct line is 484-345-4684, and Greg is 484-345-4681. Notice the numbers in the front are all the same, and my direct line is 4685 as the last number. So you can call, speak to any one of us for more information, um, but when you call our office, we'll ask some initial questions, get your insurance information, get you an appointment to come in for an evaluation, then a meeting with Gregory or Shannon, um, and then be able to get you started in the group if it's the right fit. Is there a website? Uh, you can go to karen.org, and I forget if it's a slash, uh, you know, what the letters are after, but if you Googled Karen Outpatient Treatment Center and why I'm missing, um, you'll be able to click on the direct website then and not have to go through the full Karen pieces to find us. And uh, real quick, Yvonne? Uh, how people can get in touch with the Coca Burks and your website. Sure. The Council on Chemical Abuse is 610-376-8669. And you're welcome to visit our website at www.cocaburks.org. Uh, we do have information as it relates to how to access treatment. Uh, we do work with TASC, which is our uh, central intake unit. But ultimately, we do get folks over to Karen Counseling Services for outpatient. 
I want to thank Dr. Ramona Roberts, Greg Day, Shannon Tessera, and Yvonne Stroman for coming in today. Folks, thank you. It was a great, great topic that we talked about today. I learned a lot. Thank you for having us. So thanks for coming in. Folks, we'll be back with the final seconds of feedback in just a bit. Stay with us. News, talk, and weather. It's the topics that matter to me. A new generation of talk. News Talk 830 WEEU. That wraps up another edition of Feedback, at least for this Monday. We'll be back tomorrow. Thank you so much to all of you who chimed in today with your opinions of the topics of the day. You folks are the stars of the show. And everybody who tuned in, thank you so much for making us part of your day. I want to thank my new producer, Sean Tansky, for a great job today on his first day. Thank you, buddy. Look forward to working with you again tomorrow. 